First Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly without, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Nick. Good morning, Antioch. So here we are. We've got a fun passage to go over today. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad you appreciate that. Uh, it, 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 is a, it is a bit of a challenge. It is a bit of a challenge in certain ways. Um, one thing about this morning's sermon is it's not fair and balanced to men and women. There's one verse that's going to be addressed to men, and like seven verse, verses to, to women this morning. Um, I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, I also want to acknowledge uh, there's some things in the passage that, are, that can be hard to understand. There are things in this passage I don't understand. Um, and there are things in this passage that have been taught in ways, in different times, in different places, uh, that were uh, harsh, that were meant to suppress and hurt and wound and silence, and that have been, been harmful and abusive, frankly. Uh, this is one of those passages that has been used um, to hurt women in inappropriate ways. And yet, here's this passage that's part of the Word of God. Even though some people have used it in abusive and, and evil ways, we know God. We know that God is good. We know that God loves us. We know that God loves his family. We know that God loves his sons and daughters. So we're going to take a look to this morning at this passage. Um, but before we do, would we, can we just pray um, and just talk to the Lord about this? God wrote this. I didn't write it. Um, and there's a challenge for us. So, Father, we just uh, we do uh, come before you. We're sitting here at the feet of your word, Lord, um, and we need help with this one. We need some guidance. Uh, this this is one that doesn't land in our current cultural uh, thinking very well from our perspective. But yet, you wrote words that are eternally true. And that uh, that have uh, that are for our good and for our our blessing. And so, Father, uh, help us to bridge that gap and, and figure that out a little bit today. Uh, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just be in here, and that um, um, you would just bring healing or or uh, unkindness and love um, where maybe it's been lacking at times. We just acknowledge this is a hard one for some. Uh, and I pray that you would just give them patience and comfort uh, today and, and help us all to, to just walk through this together in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, thank you for, for reading the scripture for us, uh, Nick. The, the way I want to walk through this, three points. Uh, the first point, I want to address the men with the one verse that does talk to the brothers. We want to talk about that a little bit. Secondly, uh, the, the second point I have titled Order for Teaching and Authority. And then here's the title for my third point. Is it up there? It's up there. Um, I'm just, it, just keeping it real. So uh, first, I, wanna, I do want to talk to the brothers that are here this morning, men who are followers of Jesus. Can we have a conversation for a couple moments? Um, guys, I've debated about this. You know what? I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to ask the men to stand up. If you're a man, if you're a male, you can even stand up and stay standing for this entire point of my sermon. No, really, really, um, because I want to talk to you guys for just a few moments. You'll have plenty of time to sit. I will not ask the women to stand because it's longer there and uh, I won't do that. Um, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy as he's putting this church in place, as he's giving guidance to it. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. That's the instruction here today. As, as, as brothers who are trying to follow Jesus, uh, not perfect guys, we're figuring it out as we go, we're helping each other. Um, but we've got, to, we've got to focus on these things and get a couple of things right here. Um, the first thing, he really just gives three simple instructions here, three simple pieces to it. Number one, pray. We need to be men who pray. And it's partly praying on your own in private, that type of thing. But I, I think there's implied in this the practice of praying out loud in front of other people. Uh-huh. I, that's what I said. I know how that lands because I've pastored for a little while and I've heard it consistently for a really long time. Don't ask me to pray in front of other people. That's the thing that feels really hard for men. It feels really, really tough. Um, but brothers, most prayers in scriptures are corporate prayers. Most prayer, like our Father in heaven holy is your name, is meant to be prayed together. We're in this together. And so I want to just admonish you today, learn to pray out loud sometimes. And I want to encourage you in it. It's not that super complicated, actually. Uh, I'll give you a simple prayer that you can start to use out loud on a regular basis. Lord, thank you for this food. Lord, thank you for a way to get to work. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. That's something you can do. If, you're a, if you have a family or you're married, pray out loud. And it doesn't have to be more than thank you. Over time, you'll get comfortable saying a little more. But man, we got to pray to our Heavenly Father and acknowledge Him with our words, with our lips, with our mouths before one another. Uh, it's, it's hard for some, that's okay. Start to practice. Start to practice. Also, the second thing that he mentions here is that we lift holy hands. 
Now, I, if you grew up in church, you were taught to pray differently than this. How were you taught to pray in Sunday school when you were a little boy? Fold your hands. What else? Bow your heads. Close your eyes. <laughs> Do you know why you were taught to pray that way? Do you know the verse that that came from? You were not taught that way because that's how God asked your Sunday school teacher to teach you. You were taught that way because you were a little boy. And your hands were all over the place. And your eyes were all over the place. And the only moment that your Sunday school teacher could get of order and decency was to get all the boys to close your eyes and bow your heads and fold your hands. Keep your hands to yourself for 30 seconds. But as men, as we grow up, we have to learn to pray differently. And it's not wrong to have for kids to pray that way. I mean, there's all kinds of disciplines to teach our kids. But as men, we learn to pray with holy hands lifted up. We don't have to, we don't have to, to come into this posture to pray, guys. This, is, this looks like hiding. It looks like, it, right? As men, you are sons of God. Joint heirs of God's kingdom with Christ. Stand like it. Holy hands lifted up is, is first there's this openness, right? An openness to the hands. Go ahead and put your hands up. I don't care if they're over your head, uh, barely above the waistline. Somehow get them up. And, and, and I'm looking around and it's natural when we do this for our hands to be open, not closed. And I think God is calling us. We open our hands before him. When we pray, it, it's just, it just pictures what we're doing. We're opening our hearts. We're opening our minds. We're submitting. We're yielding. We're letting go before our God and letting him have whatever might be in our hands. I notice it doesn't say uh, men should pray raising holy fists or raising angry fists to God. There's plenty of that going on in the world. We lift holy hands to him. Um, and now that's an immediate challenge to us because right away we, we realize, but my hands might not be holy right now. What about the sin I did yesterday or the day before? I hope you feel that every time you pray, I do. That's why when we pray, and when we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we go to pray, part of that prayer is, God, would you wash my hands? Would you forgive my sin? Holy means sanctified or set apart for God's use. So you're saying, here I am for your use. There's just a lot that's communicated in this that's really good. And it's really open before the Lord, and men ought to pray with lifting holy hands. And finally, he says, without anger or disputing. There are a whole lot of passages of Scripture that describe anger and disputing as being evidence that we're walking in the flesh. We're trying to do things our way without God, as opposed to walking in the Spirit which is described by the fruit of the Spirit and different things like love and joy and peace and tenderness and patience. And so he's saying, guys, we got to take that. That's part of what we confess. If that anger and disputing is there, we open our hands and let that go and stand before our holy God 
and we pray. Okay? Got it? Got it. Okay, you can have a seat, guys. So, men, we want to learn to worship in that way. Uh, I think in churches it's been too easy for men to show up and kind of hide a little bit, to kind of go stealth mode, uh, to stay a little incognito, to, to you have your seat where you feel comfortable in your space, you know, and we kind of sit back or whatever um, and not be super expressive. And this isn't a call to be a different personality or more expressive than you're comfortable. It's a call to be a man, to be open before God and to pray. Uh, that's what God, Paul is calling us to do as men. So we shift gears and we move to the next verse, and Paul begins to talk about and address women in the congregation uh, to talk to our sisters together and really to explain that um, as if, can you, can you imagine, first of all, if men came into church with this instruction in mind about prayer, would it change the culture of worship a little bit? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the women are saying, yes, that would change... Yeah, and a couple of men too. It would change our worship culture if we came with openness and, and lifting to the Lord. Uh, that would change it. Women, you have an impact on the worship culture as well. And Paul says it this way in verse 9. I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Just as he, he's calling men to put aside anger and disputing, he's call, calling women to put focus on the inward beauty of good deeds. He's not to worry so much about the, how we look on the outside. Uh, when, we, when we have our focus on how we look on the outside, it impacts us, because now I'm comparing myself to other people around me, um, it impacts other people because they're feeling it, and this comparison can come in, um, and we begin to judge on external things, not on the heart, not on valuing the things of the heart, besides the fact that uh, if someone shows up for church who has less money or they're poor, now they're being, in some ways, discriminated against if, if people who have the means to uh, dress really well are intentionally doing that. Now someone else is going, I'm not good enough. I've heard that before. Uh, I heard in a, a, um, a church I served in another state, I, he I heard that often in our community. People would say, I couldn't afford to go to church there. Oh. And sometimes I would say, I heard you say that. Can I ask you why? Because I can't afford the clothes that are needed it's one reason why I preach in jeans and have since then. Because it's like, no, 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 we gotta, we gotta be accessible to each other. Like, this should just be okay. Just be who we are together and not have those external things be our pressure uh, against people coming to hear about Christ. Um, God loves all of his daughters. He loves all of his daughters equally. He loves all his daughters really well. And he's delighted when his, his daughters come together to worship the Lord in a way that lifts one another up and supports each other and focuses on the beauty of the heart and the beauty of, of, of acts of love and acts of grace uh, that we do together. 
I'm going to talk a little bit about the second point where he talks about order in the church. I'm using that word intentionally, and I'll explain that in a second. Order for teaching and authority. He says these words. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, for she must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Whew. Wow. That feels heavy. Um, and again, uh, this has been preached in a way that has been, and taught in a way that has been unhealthy, I think inaccurate in many ways, and unkind. Um, and we don't want to do that. But we do want to see what, is it, what does this mean. Um, it's not meant to suppress women's giftedness or women's value in any way. Um, so let's look at what it does mean. If, by the way, at the end of this message, you come out with, you hold a different view on this than you think I do, that's okay. Or, or you think you have a different view than someone else in this room, that's okay with me. Let's love Jesus together. Let's keep learning and growing together. So what I want to do actually today is rather than explain this is exactly what it means and you should believe it or this is what I think it means and I'm going to push that view on you instead I'm going to give you what what I would call an interpretive method Let, what do we do when we come to a scripture passage and we read it and and sometimes honestly we read it and we think well that can't be right that doesn't seem right wait a minute that doesn't seem like the way I would think or it doesn't seem like that would be okay here. What do we do when we come to a passage where we get snagged on, on some wording in it? Or we get a little bit confused by it? Or we think that doesn't seem right. Like that doesn't, doesn't seem like what I, what I think I believe. What do we do with it? So I want to give you this, uh, this idea. It's uh, we've just got the bullseye target in here. And we're going to go from the center of the bullseye and work our way out. This is about context. And how do we interpret a Bible passage that can be a little bit hard to believe? So go ahead to the next slide there. We're going to take a look at the first. The first thing we do is we, we come right to the bullseye. We look at the words of this verse and ask, quite simply, what do these words say? I might not understand what they mean yet. I might definitely not Understand, I might not know if I agree with it or not, but for the first thing we need to do is to understand what is the plain meaning of these words? What is he saying? Sometimes I get to reacting to it, and I might not even understand what it says yet. So what does, the, what does this verse say? Focus on the words, focus on the sentences, and take them initially at face value. That's our starting point. Like, what if Paul actually just meant what he just said? Then what would that mean? Instead of trying to t turn it and get it to fit into my grid right away, just start in the center and look at the plain meaning and assume that's what the writer meant. And then let's, if, if we're, that's, that's what we do with most scripture. When you're reading, you're just assuming this means what it says. Like, oh, that makes sense. And we move on and we accept it. 
when we've come to one that's harder to accept for some reason, then, then we stop and we can expand out to the next layer on the bullseye. So the second layer on the bullseye, the second next layer of context would be, what is the main idea of this context? So I hear what you're saying here, Paul. <laughs> what are you talking, what, what is this landing in? What's this context? So let's take a look at chapter 2 of First Timothy. Do you remember earlier, if you have a Bible open, you can see it. Earlier in chapter 2, we looked at this last week about praying for our authorities. Pray for kings and governing rulers above you that we can live peaceful and quiet lives so we can grow in godliness and holiness. Do you remember that? So Paul's already talking about there's an authority structure that's under God's guidance, that God, is, God has set authority in place. He also talked about theological authority within the Godhead and, and the gospel and the apostles and the church. And now when he comes to men and women, he's in that context where God, he's like saying, I've set certain orders in place, and that's okay for things to function in. So we get it in this context that God is talking about order um, and, and order that implies things like authority and responsibility mixed in with it. Then, then we move out to the next layer, the third one on the bullseye, which would be, what is this whole book about? First Timothy or First and Second Timothy. What are some of the themes in this letter in these letters that Paul is writing to Timothy about? Or are there other things in the same writing that remind me, or that, that sound like it's talking about this same topic area? So I'm not just evaluating one thing, but I'm getting the whole picture. And if you, when we do that, we come to remember that Paul is writing to a young man named Timothy who has been given a really, really great start in life. And we remember, too, that Timothy didn't get taught or instructed by any man. Do you remember who led Timothy to Jesus and taught him how to follow Jesus? Yeah, his, his mom and his grandmother. They were both godly women they did a wonderful job teaching Timothy how to follow Jesus. And so when I see that, I think, well, I think clearly, uh, clearly Paul's not saying women don't have value in, in helping men follow Jesus or in passing on the doctrines of our faith or in giving, helping men to become strong or discipling or any of that stuff because He's writing to a guy who received that as his main benefit. And Paul's coming in really as the first man who's like a spiritual father to Timothy. So that's helpful for me to remember that. Um, that, that Timothy was the recipient of godly women teaching him and investing in his life. If we back out a little bit further and just think about the author, the Apostle Paul. Does the Apostle Paul teach us things that help give us a broader understanding about this topic of men and women and their distinction in the church? 
When we do that, we realize and we can find this, this doctrine of headship that Paul talks about quite often. Uh, he talks about it, headship is like the person responsible for, is the head of, is kind of the way he talks about it. He talks about Adam is the head of the human race in that Adam is actually the one responsible for sin entering the human race. He talks about that in the book of Romans. And Jesus is the head of the church. It's under the headship, or Jesus is the one responsible for the church. He's the one who brought life to us and to us who would be called the church. He's the head of the church. And in, the, in that context, Paul says Jesus uh, is the head of the church, a husband is the head of his wife. He carries some sort of responsibility. Some, God looks to the husband and says, you better step up, dude. Um, we actually see this uh, culturally as well. Um, from our tax documents and everything else, there's a head of household category. Like, who's the, one, who's the responsible person? For this family. That's the head. Uh, it's the same, words being used the same way. God is looking to men a little bit differently than he's looking to women in the sense of uh, God seeing them as responsible and holding them accountable for the spiritual health of the family and the church. And that's a context that Paul talks about in other ways. Um, now, by the way, that doesn't mean what sometimes gets read in is, well, if men are, men are the authority and women need to submit. It's not quite, that's too stark. That's not quite the way Scripture teaches it. Men are, res- are held responsible and women are called to submit to godly leadership um, but women are never called in the, anywhere in the Bible to submit to abuse. And I, that could go without saying, but I don't want it to go without saying. I want to say it. There's nothing in the Bible that would call a woman to submit to an abusive man. If you know of a passage that tells us they should, let me know. Um, Sarah submitting to Abraham was close, because Abraham is a real piece of work at times. And she's honored for, for honoring him because he was someone that God had placed his hand on, even though he did it really badly. So there's times when it's not easy, but God's putting responsibility on men. We can back up to the next one, uh, number five, and look at the, the rest of the New Testament. Does the New Testament teach us anything about men and women and their role in the church? Um, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about Jesus. Uh, Jesus discipled a lot of people. He had disciples. Some of them were formal. He picked his disciples and his name's 12 men. But he also had a lot of informal discipling relationships going on all the time that included men and women. So I think that's just interesting. It doesn't tell us that men are more important than women but there was some responsibility he was giving those 12 disciples who would later become the 12 or the apostles of the church. 11 of them did. Um, and, and have some responsibility for, for leadership in the church that were different 
than the rest of the disciples that he taught and raised. And then we look back even further and say, what does the whole Bible teach? Does the Bible teach us outside, like in the Old Testament, things that are helpful? And that's actually what Paul's doing here in the text. He's making some references all the way back into Genesis in terms of the support for what he's saying. Uh, We know that men and women are created in the image of God both equally. Um, Some take that to really weird places, you know, well, but a man and a woman combined equal the image of God. The Bible doesn't teach that. Um, Men, you are created in the image of God, and you have value because God's image is stamped on you. Sisters, you are created in the image of God, and you have value because God's image is stamped on you. It's exactly the same biblically. As far as our value and our ability to reflect God in this world. At the same time, he refers back to this story from the beginning of time where man was formed first, given responsibilities and instructions, like here's what you should do and not do, here's what you're responsible for. Back, this is Genesis chapter two and three. And then the guy was lonely. And God's like, oh yeah, it's probably not good that you're alone while all these other, everything else in creation (laughs) seems gendered. So I'm going to bring you a woman and create from you, from your side as an equal, uh, a, a partner, a helper to do this stuff with you. So now you have Adam and his wife Eve. They love each other. They're working well together. They're clicking along, doing what God told them to do in this Garden of Eden. Sin hadn't come into this world yet. And the serpent comes up and had a conversation. Who did the serpent choose to have a conversation with? He chose to have a conversation with Eve. Why do you think he would choose to have a conversation with Eve and not a conversation with Adam? If you follow the biblical narrative of that story, you realize God himself told Adam, Adam, here is what I want you to do. I, and here's, what I, here's the thing you're not supposed to do. These are the rules and the gu- guidelines for living in the Garden of Eden. And then who told Eve? Adam told Eve what God told him. It doesn't tell us anywhere in the Bible that Adam gave these instructions to Eve. So if you're the serpent going, hmm, I'm going to trip these guys up because I don't like God, which one are you going to go to talk to the one who didn't get the firsthand information because you can get her to doubt and question this information since it came to her secondhand. So that's what he does. And he asks some questions. She didn't exactly get it right. We don't know if it's because she added a little bit to the instruction, or maybe Adam didn't tell her exactly the way God told him, but somewhere down the chain, Satan creates a little bit of wiggle room to create doubt and use that doubt to get her to think, hey, it's going to be a good idea to do the thing God told us not to do, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now, what is the text? Where's Adam during this whole time? The serpent's talking to Eve. He's getting her to question all the stuff that she was told. 
And, and not until the end of the conversation, she takes the fruit that she's not supposed to eat and gave some to her husband who was with her. And, and you read that, you're like, dude, you've been standing there the whole time? You didn't say a thing. You watched her get tricked and deceived and led over here into a bad choice. You heard from God yourself. You should have stepped up and, and stepped on the serpent's head right there and been done with it. Or stepped in and spoke the truth. Or take, you know, you should have exercised your responsibility and authority and he didn't. And that's kind of this background to humanity uh, it doesn't mean that one is a sinner and the other is not. Men and women are both born sinful people into this world. God is still looking to the Adam in this room, to the brothers saying, guys, step up. Step up. Speak truth. Be helpful. Don't, don't, don't be passive while someone else is being tricked or deceived or struggling. But engage. Engage. And that's kind of a broader biblical context of what's happening. So there's no hint in, in Paul's wording that Eve's not as smart as Adam or that women in the church are not as smart as, as men. There's no hint that women can't teach as well as a guy. I think we all know. Women generally teach well. I mean, most of our school teachers tend to be women. They do a great job at that. My wife's a teacher. She teaches really, really well. Don't put me in the third grade class. I mean, I can try, but she's better. It's not saying that. Um, when we look at uh, other places about how the Spirit's giving gifts, like the gift to abilities and gifts and strengths, it's not different for men than women anywhere. Women are great at, at things, just as men can be, and, and there's equality in all of that. It's just this level of headship and responsibility that God is looking to men to step up and take in the church. Now, sometimes we get through this. We even get through all six of these uh, stages in the bullseye and we go, but I'm still not quite sure I accept that. And so we do another thing that's not bad. And that step seven is we look at extra biblical sources and we say, but maybe there's something happening in that culture where Paul's writing Timothy that helps me understand these words. This is, this is probably the least helpful part in the interpretive process. Um, I've read books on this passage that say the city of Ephesus was all run by women. All the, the main, like historically. And, and so the, Paul's writing into that context. I've read other documents that say, well, I've done the research too, and the city of Ephesus was mainly run by men. And you can pick what you want out of history. We do know there were men and women in government in Ephesus, and I don't know that it has anything to do with Paul's instructions for the church. But we look at that because we want to have understanding. One of the things we learn from, well, look at, look at 
bring it into context of number eight, kind of the last interpretive grid, my assumptions and my values. At some point, we have to do a gut check and say, what assumptions and values am I bringing to impose on this text? How is it affecting the way I see it? In studying this, uh, Dr. Yarborough from Trinity did a study um, a, few, a number of years ago, and he, did, he surveyed everything that has ever been written about these verses right here throughout all of history. So we have 2,000 years of history, everything ever written about it. And up until through 1969, every single writing about these verses basically said, Paul means exactly what he says in these words. They stopped at number one. The first, the first part of our interpretive grid, what do the words say? They all concluded Paul meant exactly what he said. And that was normal and accepted for almost 2,000 years. In 1969, what was happening culturally here, the women's lib movement, it just kind of gave a different cultural bias to look at this. And after that, people started writing commentaries saying, well, Paul didn't really mean that. He actually meant something else. And then here's different reasons why it must mean something other than he says. Um, I think it's helpful for me to know, like this is a fairly, theologically, fairly recent <laughs> thing to throw out the biblical concept of headship and try to, to, to come up with a different kind of equality that God's word doesn't teach in the church. One that has no distinctions between men and women at all. Look where culture has taken that now. <laughs> I mean, men can actually be women or women can actually be men or whatever you want to do there, right? It's just the next logical step but it's not what God's word has, has taught us for a long time, what we can bank on. So I wanted to walk you through this interpretive method to say, this is a harder passage. It's not focused on suppressing women. It's focused, I think, broadly, biblically, on men, take responsibility, stand up and help, let's work together in a way that's mutually respectful and mutually honoring. Does that make sense? Did you track logically with what I was doing with the interpretive method? Okay, good, because, that's good, because now we come to this third part of this, this last part of this text, which is a really weird statement. Okay, so now we get to test it. <laughs> Paul says, but, but women will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Um, that's an interesting statement. We could use that. So I look at this and I start with, what do the words say? Women can be saved through childbearing? I'm, that doesn't land in a category that makes sense to me. So I say, well, okay, if, if I'm struggling with the first step in the interpretive process, and then I start pulling it out, I, I come to other places that tell me how women are saved. How are women saved? Through faith in Jesus Christ, exactly the same way men are saved. We're all saved, we're all sinful people, we're all saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Does this mean women need to be having kids to be godly Christians? 
That's silly. The Bible talks about children are a gift from God. It's not something we just do. And the Bible tells us um, that, that sometimes for men and for women, God calls us to be single. And that's great. Because it can give us a freedom to really be devoted to the Lord. So that doesn't fit with other scripture passages to, to understand it that way which still leaves it unknown. Like, what does it actually mean? <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a way, some think, it's a way of referring all the way back to Eve, who got, when they fell into sin, God also gave them a promise that someday you'd have a child who's going to crush the head of that snake, which would be Jesus down the line. And so maybe through the promise of G baby Jesus yet to come, which comes through childbearing, that, that there was hope in it. Maybe that's what it means. I actually don't know. Um, or maybe Paul's just in a very general way of saying, let's honor God's order and God's order for society within the church and in the world around us, and God will, God will do good things in that. Maybe it's a really general statement like that. I'm not sure. I think that's probably what it is. It's not what it looks like it could mean <laughs> that women need to have babies to get saved and, and as Christians. That's silly because the Bible, that would contradict the rest of the Bible. Um, what does it mean? My conclusion is I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> if you know, great. If you want to tell me what you think it means, that's fine. You're free to do so. But I don't know. Some of these things aren't clear. There's actually another, I think Peter referred to Paul's teachings once and said, you know that guy, Paul, some of his stuff is a little hard to understand. I'm actually standing with Peter today going, I don't understand this part. Um, but I do understand when I, when I find something that feels unsettling, I'm okay with leaving it not fully clear in my mind and backing up and saying, but I know what the rest of the Bible teaches. And I know that, that God's word is good. And I know that, that men and women are loved and have incredible value. And I don't have to understand this detail. And I don't have to get stuck on it. I can come back and live my life in the way of Jesus that was good. And I understand that. In, in more broader terms. Does that make sense? Because sometimes that's what I end up with. I've just seen people get stuck on a detail that's harder to understand, and I think we don't need to get stuck on that. We can just back up into broader context and follow Jesus. And some of these things we think, maybe someday I'll understand it, maybe I never will, that's okay. God is good, and he loves his people. So I want to, I want to just say as, as application, as summary to some of these things. Um, women are equal in value to men in the sight of God and should be in our sight to one another as well. I would also say women's voices are just as important as, as men's voices in the church. And in most contexts, there's no distinction. Being in a small group at home 
There's no reason a woman should be hesitant to speak up there. There's also no reason a guy should sit there like a lump and not say anything. We should all be participating together in helping each other grow in our faith. I would also say, men, you do have some headship responsibility. It doesn't mean you're better than anybody else or have all the things figured out. But it means you you don't be passive. Like engage and grow and let God use you. And here at Antioch, those I, I think that's consistent with what we hold together. So can, can we accept the tension of not understanding something while embracing what we do believe in, that, in those broader themes? I'm okay doing that. I would invite you to do that as well, um, and even to do it here today. So let me, let me cl- pray to close, and then we're going to transition to having a time of communion together. Father, thank you for this teaching, even the parts I don't understand. Thanks for the parts of the Bible that are uncomfortable to me. Because sometimes they're uncomfortable because it reveals maybe a bias that I have. Sometimes it's uncomfortable because it reveals that I don't see the whole world the same way you do. Lord, we're, we're small in our perspective. Help us to understand the whole counsel of God. And help us to patiently love, encourage each other, and spur each other on toward love and good deeds as we do this together. Thank you for our brothers and our sisters in Christ and the opportunity we have to grow together as a family. In Jesus' name, amen.